Wishing and hoping for a happy new year. Welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 2919 East Broadway. This is the Jake Feinberg Show on Power Talk 1210 KEVT, Sarita Tucson. Thank you so much for making us part of your day today. The sanctified churches in the South lent themselves to an Afrocentric form of appreciation for their deity. The first modified drum kits were in the sanctified churches with sticks and tambourines and maybe even electric guitar. The gospel hymns were infectious and spoke of celebration, hope, and most importantly, spirit. The preachers were often pugnacious and speaking to a congregation that wanted the truth, not the warmed-over Anglo-Protestant messages coming from the other side of town. These preachers found places like Eufalala, Alabama, untenable and took their families to the Midwest where car companies and industry roared with commerce jobs and a hotbed of cross-fertilized music. My guest today is a superstar soul singer. She has been striving for elevated consciousness and individualism since she broke on the scene over five decades ago. Born the daughter of a preacher man, my guest was immersed in Detroit's metropolitan church and choir. She was also privy to the hottest nightclub scene in America where jazz was being played in soul clubs and blues was being played in the jazz clubs or on the street. There were no jazz schools and learning came in the form of street, street learning, finding like-minded singers and accompanists because it didn't matter what you wear just as long as you were there. My guess has been the undisputed truth of Motown. Her southern gut bucket approach was heavier and funkier than many of her contemporaries. Her songs had hooks rarely seen for the time that allowed audiences of all colors to hip sway in the night on TV shows, dances, and studio demos. She became an instant sensation, and the testament to her longevity is that her tunes are still recognizable today by a new generation of Americans, one that is less white, more multi-ethnic, and maybe less sure of their roots. My guest's roots were with Della Reese, whose name she incorporated into her trio known as the Vandellas. She learned how to project on the bandstand and entertain, as well as swing. When Motown went west, she stayed in Detroit and became a purveyor of social justice while continuing her performing career on labels like RCA, Arista, and Fantasy. Nowhere to run to, Martha Reeves, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Well, thank you, Jake Feinberg. What a pleasure to hear all that good stuff about me. Well, it's, there's a lot more to it. It's nice. It's <laughs> such, an, such an honor to connect with you. Um, you know, uh, Martha, I wanted to ask you, uh, cats like Kenny Burrell, Elvin Jones, Donald Byrd, Youssef Latif, uh, Barry Harris, the, the, Tommy Flanagan, they all came out of Detroit. And when you were working those odd jobs during the day and singing in those jazz clubs at night, I wanted to know the cats that you played with. I wanted you to paint the picture of that scene for us. Well, it wasn't really uh, a lot of uh, my performing in, in jazz clubs, but I was discovered in the, in the Detroit to Detroit 20 grand. I had won an amateur contest, which was a thing before American Idol and uh, X Factor. We were uh, privy to different theaters to do amateur shows. And on one occasion, I won a contest that allowed me to sing in a, you could consider the 20 grand a, a jazz nightclub, but they had all types of music there. Biggest names in the music business played the 20 grand, 
which is now defunct, but it was a privilege and an honor to be able to have three nights there, $5 a night, during the happy hour, because <laughs> I lived in a house where Dad wouldn't let you come in after 12. <laughs> you had to be in before, no matter what age you were. <laughs> if you lived in this house, you came in before 12. So uh, William Stevenson of the A&R Department, better known as Hitsville, Hitsville USA, which became known better as Motown Records, invited me to Hitsville, USA to uh, have an audition. I didn't know, with him giving me that card, what it implied. I showed up the next day, which was Monday, and the first of the month, and uh, presented my card and was allowed to speak with him in his office. That was how I made the connection. I kind of felt like he was sent to me by God, and that that was my beginning of my professional career. And... Um, the rest is, is uh, our music history. Uh, I, yeah, I think, didn't you show up early and you were accosted by the people there? So I, I read there were people, about 50 of them, standing on the stairway because that's how it was in the early days. People always lined up to see if they could get a chance to be as famous as Mary Wells, Marv Johnson, the Miracles, and uh, the um, Spinners, and who else was there? The Temptations had not made their arrival at that time, and the Supremes were there, but they didn't have hit records. They were just uh, 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 putting out records that Smokey Robinson had written, but they were not hits. The Marvelettes had hit with uh, Mr. Postman, and they were doing a song called Beachwood 45789, which got us all in trouble because it was actually some ladies in a phone number in Florida. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, we were an up-and-coming company, and... Uh, as I walked in the door, I passed about 50 people, but I showed them, look, I have a card. And uh, so I was uh, about business. So when I got there, he asked me what was I doing there. And I asked him, didn't he give me a card and, and asked me to come to that company? He said, yeah, but we have auditions every third Thursday. The phone ringing off the hook, and he was busy doing something. Uh, so he asked me if, if I would answer the phone in that in our department until he got back. So I accepted the challenge and took over, and when he came back, I was indispensable because it took him four hours to get back. He was somewhere writing a song for this drummer named Marvin Gaye. He had been brought to the company by a man named Harvey Fuqua, who was married to one of Barry Gordy's sisters, Gwendolyn. And, uh, you know, it was a family company, and it seemed like everybody was related to everybody. When, and when I answered that phone, I realized there were 17 guys working out of that office. And I took messages and kept all of the women separate from the wives and the singers and whatever. <laughs> I did a good secretary job. And uh, when he came back, I was indispensable because I handed him a stack of messages that I kept. I torn up the notebook paper and made a stack of messages for him and all of those different producers. All of them were singers, and all of them were writing for the different artists at Motown. It was a growing company. It was like a beehive. There was always some activity. The doors to Barry Gordy's house, which it was, uh, with a hand-painted sign on it, never shut the doors. They were always open. Whatever you wanted, you could go and do any kind of work, you know, dub dubbing in, adding a track or, of uh, music or changing the drums or whatever. There was always some activity in, in that company. So I had landed in a good spot, and I held my spot for the four hours. And when he came back, he asked me to stay the rest of the day and asked me if I would come in the next day, and the rest is history. I never got the audition. But I was singing from the word go. I was doing demonstration records, and I might be the most recorded artist that Motown ever had because one of my jobs was making demonstration records. Can you? Uh, were you working with uh, with Benny Benjamin and James Jamerson and those cats? Oh yeah. You want to talk to the cats? Yeah, no, Benny Benjamin and, and James Jamerson came to the door in that four hour 
uh, job that I had mm-hmm. before William Stevenson returned, <laughs> and they were adamant. They wanted to fight somebody because they wanted the $5 that they had made the day before, before they cut the session across the, the hall to that, that, to that day. And uh, I put them directly to the uh, <laughs> on the phone with the salesperson, Betty O'Shea. She was taken aback when I put them directly on the phone with her, and she got to hear some of the choice words they were giving me. And I didn't know what I was doing there. I just knew that they, they wanted money in the sales department. That's where you go and get it. They had four lines on that phone. One was the sales department, one was the A&R department, one was Barry Gordy's office, and one was the A&R de- one was a Studio A. So I called the sales department and put them directly on the line, and when she- they finished cursing her out like they had been doing me, <laughs> somebody who didn't know what they were doing, um, she agreed to always have the musicians' checks ready for them after they per- uh, performed the session. And that made everybody happy. And that might be why my tracks were so good uh. and why... <laughs> And why some of my, my uh, songs were so groovy and so jazzy, because they really uh, appreciated me speaking up for them, like I've done most of my career, spoke up for people, represented, and, and uh, was the one who, be, who would uh, actually be bold enough to ask a thing like, can the musicians get paid? Right. <laughs> the, 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 advoc- the advocacy, um, can you talk about um, uh, a little bit, uh, you were probably too young to, to really even remember anything uh, related to the church in Alabama, but uh, can you talk about the an experience, a transcendent musical or spiritual experience at the Metropolitan uh, Church? Because I have to believe the advocacy came from your folks. Oh, yeah. Well, I never sang in the church in Alabama. I was brought to Detroit at the age of 11 months. We went back every summer because grandparents had a farm. Mm-hmm. Until they died, we would have a, a double life. We'd live our our life in the winter in school, and when school was out, we would always go south and live our summer days on the farm. And uh, so the church in Detroit was a family church, very few members, but my dad having 12 children, we were the choir. Dad had four, four sisters and three brothers, but none of, their, none of them were talented. Dad had all the talented kids, so we were the church choir, and, and I spent most of my teenage years and in the church singing with my brothers and sisters as a choir, unable to sing any secular music until I was about 15 years old. But then after that, uh, I fell in love with Dinah Washington, Della Reese, Ella Fitzgerald, uh, Nancy Wilson, singers like that who influenced me and made me want to sing like them. Lena Horne was the one who captured my my soul when I saw her performing at, at a place called Paradise Valley. It was a theater, and I saw her on a show with Count Basie, uh, Bill Doggett, um, Eddie Pegleg uh, Bates. Um, wow. Um, Eddie, Eddie Lockjaw Davis, uh-huh. Pegleg Bates, uh-huh. uh, uh, Louis Armstrong. Caldonia, what makes your big head so hot? She was rocking. Uh, <laughs> and um, Duke Ellington, Cap Calloway, all of them on the same show. It was a wonderful show, and I was about three years old, if I can remember clearly. And uh, it was when I decided I wanted to be in show business. I wanted to do what Lena Horne did to me when she was standing in front of that screen from the movie with people running by with umbrellas. And here's this beautiful woman singing the blues. And I said in my heart, she's too pretty to have that kind of blues. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to be a singer and affect people with my song, just like she did, having been uh, debuted at the age of three in my grandfather's church with my two older brothers. So I knew Mama approved of my singing, and I knew I had something, and Mom encouraged 
encouraged me. She taught me how to retain lyrics. And I think she, she, she sang through me vicariously. I think my mom wanted to be a singer, but with 12 children, well, but she did sing to us sometimes when she got tired of beating us in the head, trying to get us to go to sleep with two and three in the beds. I don't even know how that's... <laughs> I mean, I have, I have two kids. You know, that that's the norm for today. But the families were... I, I mean, I, you know, Martha, I just... Could you talk a little bit about... I mean, obviously, the, uh, the, the sanctified church in Alabama. Can you talk about... But I was never in a sanctified church. You never even it was ventured in African Methodist yeah. Episcopal Church, and it was in Detroit. I know, but never in went, Alabama. Never. When, when you went, I was ba- brought to Detroit when I was eleven months old. But when you went back in the summers, you never went. You never. We didn't go to no. Uh-uh. No, there ne- was no church going in the South. We had restrictions in the South. Can you? And, and yeah. I'm talking 45, 1945, uh, There were not very many churches available to us especially in Alabama. My grandfather's ministry was in Detroit. Your grandfather's ministry was in Detroit? Right. Interesting. Yeah, no, I, I'm always fascinated. I've talked to these guys like, you know, Clyde Stubblefield and Jabo Starks, James Brown's drummers, you know, they're they're talking about these, like, modified drum sets, you know, where it was just like a tambourine, maybe a couple of sticks. And I just, you know, to me it's like, you know, you, you need to have rhythm as a, an accompanist, if you want a gig, I just kind of want to, you know, but when, when, when Martha Reeves is, is counting off a, a tempo, I mean, where do you think you developed your rhythm from? How did you get your rhythm? We used to uh, have a game called 10X. And sometimes we would turn the lights off and we'd use pots and pans and boxes and sticks and whatever to make rhythms. And we'd, we'd shout out when to stop and we'd shout out when to start. So as a family, we're the generation before television. As a family, we learned rhythms. It might have been because we're African-Americans. But uh, my tambourine playing that I do on every show was inspired by Jack Ashford of the Funk Brothers. Oh, yeah. He actually taught me how because in our rhythms, the shuffles that we do are old hat. It's what the jazz musicians cut their baby teeth and lose their wisdom to trying to play. <laughs> And uh, most drummers will race your tempos because they don't know a shuffle. They don't know all the beats of a shuffle. So he taught me to play the tambourine so that I could hold down some of the fantastic rhythms that they put in songs like Nowhere to Run <laughs> and uh, uh, even a ballads like My Baby Loves Me. You can't race those tempos. Some modern-day drummers will get to a point in the song and they'll speak through the rest of it. Well, uh, I had to learn how to hold them down because there's a rhythm and a pocket for every song, and you have to stay in the t- in that tempo. Narada Walden is very good at keeping tempos. He's uh, like a master of rhythms, yeah. and it's always a pleasure to hear him perform and to pull- perform with him. That's why when he called me about this annual Christmas celebration where he'll be helping people, uh, this fundraiser, I was anxious to just come and play with him. I want to, you know, I want to see good done uh, as far as helping the people through his fundraising. But I also want to hear the good music that we're going to present together with his band and in San Francisco. My first time working with him, him was in New York. He's a New York cat. When nothing can ease your mind and you've got no place to hide Got no place to hide And the wind whispers fears you've never heard 
tearing at your pride And all your dreams are made of sand You better wipe the dust from your eyes Wipe the dust from your eyes Don't you know you gotta keep on moving on Keep on moving on Keep on keeping on Keep on keeping on You gotta keep on moving on Keep on moving on Keep on keeping on Keep on keeping on Don't you know you gotta keep on moving on Keep on moving on Keep on keeping on Keep on keeping on You gotta keep on moving on Keep on moving on Keep on keeping on Music on the Jake Feinberg Show brought to you in part by the Circle Tree Ranch, Abbott Taylor Jewelers, and the Tucson Jewish Community Center of Southern Arizona. We thank them for their support. All right, Martha, what do you got for us? Ah, J.J. Johnson. That's MCA right. Records. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. from a movie. That's from a movie called Willie Dynamite. Oh, man. I'm still uh-huh. looking for I am Keep on keeping on. Keep on moving on. Uh-huh. Martha Reeves. Uh, this is after Motown b- bounced out to the West Coast. You decided to stay. And then these, these black exploitation films were, uh, I, I assume, I mean, like those cats, like David T. Walker. The, the, that those those tunes are just so funky and in the pocket. But I'm curious as to your experience. You know that was really one of your first. I know you did a self-titled album in '74, but that was one of your first collaborations after Motown. Do you, can you talk a little bit about that? that? I give a lot of credit to Richard Perry, who's the producer of that particular uh, project for the film score of of uh, Willie Dynamite, and he also did my first solo album where I got the chance to work with. Uh, Oh, so many wonderful, wonderful musicians. And the collaboration took a year. And uh, MCA was a little upset about the budget, <laughs> how much it cost. But uh, he, was, he was in the meantime, as, as he was producing me, trying to reunite the Beatles. He was working with uh, Smilson, uh, Milson Smilson. He was doing the thing with Carly Simon. Wow. And uh, he had quite a few people on his list. And uh, I got to meet them, and it was wonderful, uh, you know, singing back up with Mary Clayton on, uh, on a, uh, um, the drummer for the for the for the uh, Ringo Ringo, the drummer for the for the Beatles. Sure, he was working with with Ringo, trying to get John and George and and uh, Paul together. Uh, so it was an experience working with Richard Perry. What what a producer! What a dynamite guy! And uh, that pulled me out of uh, of. Uh, disaster because Motown moved and I had to move to LA for a while and uh, MCA was my lifesaver my first solo album we had um, oh such collaborations such wonderful James Gaston was on there playing drums oh, that, he's mean, fantastic well and I interviewed him fantastic. I mean I interviewed that cat like I was like I was with Hank Ballard and the, and the Midnighters I mean it was a mm-hmm. ridiculous dude did you I'm curious um, did you know the cat G.C. Cameron sure because he had a similar situation that you did where, you know, he was rocking with the spinners, but then he went to he went to, to Los Angeles and split with Motown and then went on his solo career. Did you guys, I mean, t- can you tell me a little bit about, uh, I didn't realize that you actually did relocate to the West Coast. I thought you stayed in Detroit, but you went out to oh, LA. Oh, no, I came back home. 
You did. <laughs> yeah, I stayed in I stayed in Los Angeles fourteen years, and I came back home after that. Both parents were in the hospital, so I came back because of of a uh, emergency, a family emergency. But while there, I recorded on uh, Fantasy as well as MCA Records, uh, to continue my career. Uh, it was just a one album situation with Richard Perry on MCA. And moving on to the next uh, company, it was Hank Cosby from Motown Funk Brothers who invited me to record in Berkeley uh, for Fantasy Records. And then from there, I went to Arista Records with the invitation of Clive Davis from uh, Los Angeles. I moved back to Detroit, and the next thing you know, I'm in New York recording. So it's been a continuation of recording. I have never stopped. And I made some really nice songs, masterpieces. That, and the older I get in this business, the more people hear them and call me out. So uh, we planted some good seeds with music. You, you, you are, you've been such a trendsetter, but can you tell me, talk about when you talk to younger cats, especially uh, people that have basically grown up with music as a form of pacification instead of being moved, and also the, the relentless digitization of music? I just find it it's harder... It's harder for them to hear stuff. Their their ears are not as open, and I'd like your opinion on that. First of all, you can't replace real musicians with toys and gimmicks and knobs and sounds and pings and pangs. There's a, a inspiration from a musician when I perform. Um, like I said, every time we perform these songs, the musicians have their own interpretation. So we get different souls, different spirits, and everybody has their own interpretation. And you welcome that. It never gets mundane or repetitious because it's a different set of cats playing it. I insist on working with live musicians. I don't like working with tracks because <laughs> right. tracks can't make you feel anything. That's right. And the instruments that are that, that are, are duplicated by machines don't have the same spirit in them that the musicians put through. You know, there's a there's a oh, it's a it's necessary for me. There's a, there's something missing when it's not a real musician playing music behind me. So there's so so missing. when you when you hear people saying, "Yeah, I'm going to use Pro Tools and I'm going to do this and that," I mean, I mean, I guess the other thing is this, Martha. Not that you believe me. I know that you had to fight and scrap and claw. Jamerson, those cats were banging on the door. They wanted their five bucks. But yeah. do you also feel? I mean, that that. A musician, I remember talking to somebody, uh, you know, someone in the 50s, you know, Dizzy, musicians were treated with the same regal qualities as lawyers and doctors. And today, it seems to me that musicians, it's more of considered art, and therefore it's not a profession. Do you, f do you see that occurring where it's like, you know, now you have cats that have to pay to play at a place. Yeah. At opposed yeah. To, so, I mean, how did, how did that value, where did that switch come from? Was it as simple as... As Joe Sample told me, when Reagan came in, the motto became, "I I got I got mine. Why don't you have yours?" Is that kind of the the is that where it started? Can you pinpoint how we got from um, royal treatment of classy melodic improvisers improvisers to now you're going to have to pay us if you want to play here? You know, I I can't re relate to anything but Motown because where my roots began is where my heart is, and uh, they paid those guys five dollars a session. And they scoured the city and found the best jazz musicians. The musicians were superb and hard to emulate. When we get ready to play a song, we got to show a bass player how James played on an upright, how he had a concert bass where it wasn't loud but powerful. Right. We had to sing in the pockets of his bass line. Well, we can't sing in, in a bass line if we can't hear ourselves. 
And so I have to always keep telling the bassists to turn down. And and if you listen to concert music, if you go to any symphony orchestra's performance, you'll notice that the bass is the quietest instrument, but the loudest heard. 